Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim. He's Alex. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to start with the test drive of what might be the most important Lexus product. Alex, what have you got for us? The most important Lexus product, my new microphone. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, It is the Lexus RX. It accounts for a huge percentage of Lexus sales in North America. If you don't realize how huge, you should go to some of those car sales listings and just see what percentage of a luxury manufacturer's volume is a single model, and the RX numbers will blow you away. It's more than a third of the entire Lexus brand sales in North America. truly shocking number of cars. Uh, So to get the RX right is incredibly important. And to make sure that you get it right, while not alienating, let's be frank, the old customers that buy the Lexus RX, also very important. Tricky squeeze in there for them marketing-wise, baby boomers are starting to die off. They may have already bought their last Lexus RX. So this generation's dual mission is to also be more exciting to younger customers. I was really curious about that. And the more I think on it, the more I guess it makes sense based on what we've seen with the new RX. Did you did you see the pictures already about the front uh, end and interior? The thing is, I can't get over the way the grill looks, but it's got great reviews in terms of like tech and interface. The interior looks clean, it looks upscale. I just don't know from a styling standpoint, how many people are gonna be able to get past that grill Ah, so you're not a fan of the uh, less aggressive Predator. Yeah, I mean, here's the problem. You would have thought that back in the 2000s, Toyota would have learned its lesson after it put a sea lion snout on the Camry. But then here we are a generation later, and they've done the same thing to the Lexus RX. I, I actually found it more attractive in person longer term, like living with it for a day. Actually, I was there three days, I guess. So the first day we saw it, you know, weren't able to drive it. Second day we drove it, filmed it, all that sort of stuff. Last day I got driven to the airport in one. It it grew on me in that it is much more demure than the grill that we had on the previous generation RX. So it no longer has that weird beak-like thing where where there's a weird break in the sheet metal line on the hood. It's now one continuous flowing line. It's much more upright, much bolder and squarer in the front. And then the grill itself is significantly smaller. The upper sections of the spindle grill are simply a cut line in the plastic. Same color, body color. If you squint, you won't notice where that line begins and ends. And the actual grill is now more or less uh, square shaped, I guess you'd say. It's like it's a little bit less, a little bit triangular, a little wider at the bottom. And then it blends more smoothly into the body color. So the body color starts out with some little, little, I guess, uh, Mercedes-like emblem dots. I mean, Mercedes was the first one. I don't know what you call that, a 3D grill element. Mercedes was the first one to do it in some of their modern grills. Lexus basically borrowed the concept, made them bigger, and just had them turn from body color to black as it goes across the grill from one side to the other. Um, If you aren't a fan of the the predatory shape and you want something that's a little bit easier on the eyes, I would argue this is it. Not a fan of the F-Sport grill, though, with the big black squiggles. (laughs) 
So, I mean, I will be honest. We asked for years, make the grill smaller, make the grill less aggressive. The old RX looks like it was trying to channel a full-size truck. But I think we're starting to see that you need to be careful what you wish for with the new RX, uh, the current Ford Escape, <laughs> and the new Honda HRV. Like, you could very easily wind up with a guppy face. And I'm not sure I'm into that either. It's true. I think that um, in that segment, clearly the XC90 is still more attractive. Yes. The MDX, I think, is more attractive. Um, the let's be, I, I think the X5 is more attractive as well. The GLE is more attractive. But now it's not like all of those options are, you know, way at the top. And then miles below on the list, there's the Lexus. I think the Lexus is just a, a little bit below. I don't now, think it's... I actually, I, yeah. I agree with you on this. Like, I think this one's going to be less about the way it looks mm -hmm. and more about the way it works. Yeah. And, you know, to cut back to your point about alienating the baby boomers, let's not forget how long ago the RX first hit the market. Yeah, it was the first. Yeah, I mean, that's... The people who were in their earning prime back then in their early to mid 50s, they're almost out of the car market at this point. So better electronics, better infotainment interface, yep. lots of propulsion options. Let's start with the interface. OK, much better. The biggest single upgrade, the obvious improvement. Yes, I still have complaints about the Toyota connected system, which is essentially what Lexus is using. But they are a lot fewer than in the previous system. My major complaint with this generation is that everything is internet connected for the navigation. So if you are in an area with no cell service, you have no mapping at all. And it does not uh, preload much map data in order to help save on the cellular data costs. So that is definitely a bummer. On the bright side, you can add navigation to any vehicle with this software package from a Entry-level Toyota, one of the least expensive vehicles with the new software, all the way on up to a Lexus product. If it doesn't have factory navigation in your trim, you simply subscribe to it and away you go. The downside is that for people that keep their Lexuses for 10, 20 years, as some people do, then you are going to have to pay for that navigation software after your trial term. And the trial term varies based on the model. Most Lexuses are going to be about three years, about the lease term. Now, one weird twist, the RX still has a strangely small 7-inch LCD instrument cluster. And jumping out of other vehicles, including you know a, a Hyundai Tucson with a large LCD instrument cluster, or a Chevy Bolt that I literally drove, went to the event, came back, and hopped back in, and I thought to myself, wow, Either the Bolt has a fantastically big LCD cluster or the one in the RX is crazy small because they're the same size and one is supposed to be luxury and one is supposed to be a cheap and cheerful compact hatch. Which it is. Um, yeah, but, which it uh, is. Question about the option, 14-inch touchscreen. Huge. How work? How does it work? It works well. It's snappy. Uh, the interface is a little bit basic, a little bit plain. Apple CarPlay is enormous. This is probably the biggest implementation of CarPlay. And if you're a CarPlay fan like I am, then the rest of it doesn't matter because you're going to be in CarPlay all the time. But the native interface sometimes feels a little bit uh, in need of some extra visual voom, I guess. It, it just it looks a little flat, a little bit uh, stark is probably the best term for it. It's not as fully featured as some options. So if you go digging around in the menus, you find that you will not be able to dig as far as in a Mercedes or a BMW, et cetera, because there's simply less that can be configured. Did you have a chance to, to pair to a phone both for the infotainment and the, uh, the smart key functions? Were you able to use your phone to open the vehicle reliably and sync up easily to the infotainment? 
In the RX, we did not do any additional phone pairing other than Apple CarPlay. Um, they didn't really provide much data on this, and it looked like those vehicles were not equipped with phone as key. Okay. So that could be a feature that's coming later as far as the development process. We were driving very, very early pre-production vehicles, and the plug-in hybrid that we were able to drive was a pre-production European market vehicle, so they haven't even announced what we're going to get in the U.S. It may be what we drove as the European pre-production vehicle, or it may be different. We just don't know yet. And, and I will say that just hearing that the 14-inch touchscreen is working well, everyone's going to get it. It's optional. I think everyone's going to get it. That's a huge upgrade over an infotainment mm -hmm. system that, A, was dependent on an unusable trackpad. Even stationary, it was difficult to use that trackpad. It Even was pretty in, bad. Yeah, in parking lots, <laughs> it was hard. The car stationary to use that thing. And there was a CD player in the dash. That's how old this vehicle was. Mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah, the in infotainment's definitely improved. One thing that I am disappointed in, and I think more traditional luxury shoppers could be disappointed in as far as the interior design, really isn't the LCD cluster, which is kind of a bummer, but I could get over it. It's the amount of wood that we find inside. The RX has always been this softly sprung people carrier that was, you know, had a ride like a cloud and acres of wood inside. And now we only have three pieces of wood. There's a little cubby storage area, there's the shifter surround, and then there's a strip on the passenger side of the dash. So no wood trim on any of the doors, which surprised me. It does surprise me because Lexus, more than any other brand, more than Buick, proved that the old school formula for a Buick could still succeed mm -hmm. in the modern era. A very isolated, comfortable, large-scale vehicle that was user-friendly, intuitive, and maybe not emotional, but easy on the eyes and easy on the senses. And wood was part of that. Isolation mm -hmm. was part of that. Um, uncontroversial styling, up to this point, was part of that. <laughs> I would wonder, do they think that the powertrain options are going to fundamentally change mm. the attitude of the car? Like, is this like when Jaguar took the wood out of its car? Because now you have high performance engine options, whereas the previous generation had some of the fewest engine option counts of any vehicle in its class. It basically had right. one power plant. Yeah, it had, well, I mean, I guess a slight, depends on how you consider the V6 and the plug-in, or in the hybrid rather, because it wasn't exactly the same oh, V6. Oh, okay, that's fair, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, so yeah, so before we had a V6 or a V6 hybrid, and now we have not one hybrid, not two hybrids, but three hybrids, and you get to choose with or without a plug. And one turbocharged engine, not a V6 engine to be found. Uh, that's going to be the bigger shock, I think, for Lexus shoppers that have long looked down their noses at the European car companies saying, well, I wouldn't buy one of those because it has a turbo and turbos are unreliable. So I will buy a V6 or a naturally aspirated V8 because they're better. And now we have Lexuses with twin turbo V8s, Lexuses with turbos, Lexuses with turbocharged hybrids as well. Um, they've covered all the bases, and I can't help but thinking that uh, we'll cover this in a bit because I'll go over the powertrains, that, that one of them is a bit like the Europeans, but a bit too like the Europeans. So base engine, 2.4 liter turbo. It produces less horsepower than the previous V6, but a lot more torque. So it's going to go 0 to 60 about the same speed or perhaps a little bit faster depending on the trim level. That's the only one that you can get as a front-wheel drive vehicle. Everything else is going to be all-wheel drive standard. Then we have the base hybrid option, which is going to be just under 250 horsepower. By the time we're recording this, not all the power figures are official, I will warn you. Um, and unfortunately, Lexus has also yet to release legroom and headroom and cargo figures. 
even though we've already driven it. At any rate, so we have that hybrid system basically borrowed out of the Highlander. Uh, so more power than we find in the Lexus RAV4, sorry, in the Toyota RAV4. Then we have a brand new performance hybrid. This one's the one that's really intriguing. Much like the hybrid systems that we find in some Volvo models, this is combining a turbocharged engine transverse under the hood with a pancake electric motor and a real stepped automatic transmission. In this case, a six-speed automatic not an eight-speed automatic. Then on the rear axle, we have a new electric motor unit, no specifications on the rear motor. However, they claim it is more powerful than the one in the regular hybrid. So it, probably about 120 horsepower seems to be the current guess rather than somewhere around 80 horsepower like we find in the other vehicles. This gives the 500H F-Sport Performance All-Wheel Drive, longest name ever, it gives that model a feel out on the road that is substantially similar to an XC60 plug-in hybrid or an XC90 plug-in hybrid from Volvo, in that if you crank the wheel at a stop and floor it, you can get the rear end to step out a little bit, but then you're also getting decent torque steer up front because there's a lot of power on the front axle. That's gonna give you over 360 horsepower total. So some on the front axle, some on the rear axle and less of an EV drive mode than we find in the other hybrid model. So it will still technically drive along in EV mode, but only at very, very low speeds. And at stoplights, it will still turn off the engine because there is an electric air conditioning compressor, etc. But because this is more of a performance-based hybrid, it seems to spend a lot more time with the engine on at idle to give you better acceleration performance from a stop. And then at some point later, we're going to get the plug-in hybrid, but Lexus wouldn't even tell us when, what it would be called, how much it would cost, what the power and performance figures would be, et cetera, we just don't know. But we do know that the European model that they were showing us was basically the plug-in hybrid system out of the Lexus NX. That's probably what we're gonna get in the US. Now, I think it's interesting that they're going with a stepped automatic transmission in the performance in the F-Sport because mm -hmm. this is something they started playing around with on the LC500H a few years back. And basically, it's to remove the rubber band feel that you get with a lot of hybrid power systems and make it feel yeah. not engaging, not like a manual transmission, but to speak the language of a performance car as people understand mm -hmm. performance today. Yeah, there's a solid there's a solid technical reason for what they've done, too. So in a in a front wheel drive transverse engine platform vehicle, there's not a lot of room under the hood uh, in order to make the transmission handle more power. So more power, you need bigger gear sets, you need bigger clutches, you need more room there, more cooling, mobility, all that sort of thing. Space constraints in a transverse engine vehicle make that really tricky. So the reason we find a six-speed rather than an eight-speed probably has something to do with the space constraints. A four-cylinder engine, which is what we have in there, a turbo four, they are generally speaking longer than a V6 because a V6 only has three cylinders in line, a four has four. So packaging-wise, Length is a really, really big concern under the hood of a front-wheel drive vehicle, which is why trying to jam an inline six under there was absolutely bonkers crazy like we saw about 30 years ago. At any rate, so they have the four-cylinder engine, they have a transmission in there, then they need to be able to have a torque converter, some clutch packs, and a big pancake electric motor in order to power everything. All of that packaging is tricky, which is why we find the six-speed rather than the eight-speed, so packaging is easier, it's physically smaller. And then, 
we don't need the other gears as much. First gear isn't as low, but because we have the electric motor on the back, you get a lot more instant off the line torque than you'd get in a regular vehicle with a regular stepped automatic. So that's basically where the gear ratios are sacrificed is at the low end of things. And then they compensate for that with the high torque from the electric motor. The other logical reason for this particular setup is it's the only way to get over about 300 pound-feet of torque in a transverse axle vehicle. There really is no drivetrain out there that's a traditional automatic designed for more power than that. Uh, we have some dual clutch transmissions from the Volkswagen Audi group that can handle a bit more. And then we have uh, DCTs from Mercedes as well that are rated for more power. When we take a look at like a, an Acura MDX, which is going to be a close competitor to this, even though it's a, a three row, not a two row, the MDX definitely has some torque limiting going on in the lower gear ratios. It produces a decent amount of power, but not really, really low end power. And you'll notice that uh, those zero to 60 times, they're not quite as quick as competitive vehicles with similar power figures because of the torque limiting going on. The moment you stick an electric motor on the back, all of that goes out the window because that electric motor can deliver all that instant torque. And as long as you have a battery pack that can deliver it, you can get some really quick zero to 60 times. So I think it's quite logical. This is exactly what we see in the Volvo plug-in hybrids, for instance, really just emulated here with a smaller battery pack uh, in the Lexuses. And that's how Volvo can get you zero to 60 in about four seconds to four and a half seconds in some really big, really heavy SUVs, even though they have a transverse engine layout up front. And the new, the F-Sport, the RX F-Sport hybrid, it's going to be that quick, zero to 60 in the four seconds? Oh, uh, no, it is not. That oh. is one little yeah. twist here. Lexus was not as aggressive in the tuning of this system as Volvo was. Keep in mind, it's not a plug-in hybrid. So it does have a fairly small battery, and that battery is a nickel metal hydride battery as well. So the power output characteristics of this battery pack are much more modest than the Volvo pack. So it's gonna produce about 270 horsepower from the gasoline engine. Maximum total power outputs about 366 or so. Again, details subject to change by Lexus. Um, but that total power output definitely pales in comparison to the 455 horsepower that we find in the Volvos and the you know, over 500 pound-feet of torque that we find in the Volvos as well, simply because of the battery. Um, if you had a bigger battery pack in the RX, you could deliver more power to the motor without the engine being involved and you'd have faster performance times. So they're estimating about five and a half seconds or so, probably about a full second slower than the Volvo, but it will finally give them an RX entry that is as fast as a BMW X5 with a three liter inline six that should be right around there. Um, some versions of the GLE, etc. And over the years, Lexus has consistently lost ground in that zero to 60 performance battle. That's true. And I think having a model like this helps the same way having the Grand Touring Hybrid in the Lincoln Aviator mm -hmm. lineup helped, even though you look at the power rating, almost 500 horsepower, 630 pound feet of torque, you'd think the Lincoln would just be an unhinged performance machine. It's more like going from a V6 to a V8. It's not unhinged. Yeah. It's a healthy performance upgrade. I think stuff like this like with the RX F Sport Hybrid, we're mm -hmm. going to look at it as, as the equivalent of like a big motor option as yeah. opposed to Lexus turning this thing into an AMG or an Audi RS. Right. Yeah, it's absolutely not an RXF, and we may never see one. Um, it is an F Sport Performance, which is their, their speak for um, handles a tiny bit better because it does have Michelin Pilot Sport 4 tires on it, the SUV variant. 
So a little bit more grip, same tire size that we find in other models. So still 235 width, so relatively narrow, um, but grippier. And then it's going to give us improved traction and it has four corner steering. Um, it has the ability to try and bias a bit more power to the rear axle because of the way they've designed the hybrid system around that, uh, that system. And it is significantly smoother than the plug-in hybrid that we find from Lincoln. Lincoln's plug-in hybrid is absolutely not smooth at all. Um, I actually found it to be smoother than the Volvo plug-in hybrid system, which has had a lot more time on the market for refinement. It's now in its fourth generation. And Lexus managed to really beat them when it comes to drivetrain refinement. The engine doesn't feel overly refined. It definitely sounds like a four-cylinder turbo. It's not going to have that, that sweet six-cylinder sound that we've come to expect from the RX. But performance-wise, the transmission shifts nicely, uh, shifts very smoothly since we have that big electric motor in the back. During transmission shifts, there's much less of a pause in power than in the regular RX because you can just fill that in uh, with the motor in the back. Now, one final question about the RX. There was a change, not in the overall length of the vehicle. That stayed static at mm -hmm. about 192 and a half inches, but about 2.4 inches was added to the wheelbase. Did you get a chance to experience that? Was there a perceptible difference front or back in the vehicle? It's a little hard to tell because they didn't give us any numbers. It does appear that legroom is improved over the outgoing model, but details, we have to wait till we get the numbers. The main difference is really the seating position. The seating position is a little less upright than before. It, it goes with the whole sort of uh, mini, mini station wagon vibe, I guess you could say, or, or lifted station wagon vibe that it's got. The oddest thing is that, uh, again, none of the dimensions really change drastically except for that wheelbase. The roof line's only a few tenths of an inch lower, um, but because the hood is squarer and the front end has this more blunt, longer look, they pushed the A-pillar back a little bit also to try and give it that proportion. It definitely looks more uh, Volvo station wagon, I guess, at, on some angles as far as that, that stretched greenhouse look. It's it's real optical illusion because when you when you look at it in person or in pictures, it looks smaller than the outgoing model until you park them next to each other and you realize, wow, it's actually the same size as the old one. I'm not sure if that's good or bad, um, but it definitely is a thing. Yeah, it's an interesting vehicle because yeah, it's a little bit more accommodating. Interior volume is supposed to be a little bit higher, but we all know that there is a TX coming with mm -hmm. three rows of seats. So uh, who knows, maybe this will be one of those things that goes the way of other baby boomer feds, other baby boomer vehicles that were very popular in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and maybe the TX becomes the new RX. But at the very least, it seems like all the ingredients are in place. It's a new vehicle. Yeah. Up, it's an updated electronic interface. It doesn't look old inside. And the driving experience is, for better or worse, what Lexus buyers expect. Do you think that there might be any, I don't know, cross compatibility of hardware from the RAV4 Prime to the ultimate plug-in hybrid version of this? Most likely. I mean, it appears that this is going to basically be the RAV4 Prime's plug-in hybrid system, which is also shared with the Lexus NX, uh, just adapted for the vehicle. What we don't know is, are the power figures going to be massaged around a little bit? Because for this kind of plug-in hybrid system design, that's honestly pretty easy. We get the 200 uh, so or so horsepower on the front axle, 
uh, all of the Toyota and Lexus four-cylinder, two-and-a-half-liter hybrid systems are basically the same. Power outputs vary here and there based on market positioning for the vehicle from, you know, just around 200 horsepower up to just under 250. So it, it's entirely possible that Toyota could combine, say, you know, the uh, the front end of the RAV4 Prime's plug-in hybrid system with their new electric motor from the 500H. That's possible. Whether or not they will choose to do that, we don't know. Okay, so for all of the high-performance enthusiasts out there, before we transition to a cross-comparison of EV pickups, uh, let's talk a little bit about GM brands and whether there's any point in resurrecting them or whether the GMC Hummer <laughs> proves you can have beloved models without resurrecting the brand structure. What do you think about this? Yeah, I, uh, I'm intrigued because we're seeing similar things from other car companies as well. We have a Hornet without the resurrection of AMC. I, I suppose we should be grateful that AMC is not coming back from the grave. I wonder if the Voyager or something like that is going to pop back up. Um, there. Yeah, but uh, you know, Hummer was regarded very, very positively by a decent number of big SUV fans. Hummer's explosion and then drastic contraction uh, coincided with some some market things, you know, uh, stock market crashing, economy tanking, fuel economy being high. But I don't think that there was a loss in interest from the consumer base that was buying them. I think they were still interested. They just couldn't afford it anymore. And now maybe they're older, wiser, a little bit wealthier, whatever. And they seem to be interested again. It's also possible that Hummer might be attracting a demographic that never considered an EV before because they were, you know, too Tesla-like. And the Hummer yeah. is absolutely not efficient. If you oh, if you want the least green, green thing, that is it. I do think that it's for the, like, the one-ton lifted diesel dually pickup driver <laughs> who also enjoys 28-ounce you know, energy drinks that he buys in bulk. Um, it, it's, it's so over the top that it's almost designed to test whether an EV can be completely politically incorrect. And I got to admit, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, the only thing missing from the Hummer launch was them putting it into the extraction mode and then running it over a Prius. That was what I was waiting for, and it never happened. I feel a little cheated. Yeah, well, you know, given Elon Musk's luck with, like, electric truck stunts, maybe it's best they didn't. Like, we all remember the <laughs> hammer and the bulletproof the bulletproof glass. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say there's definitely room to, like, like, they need some way to figure this out. Like, they need a legend slime. Like a way to bring back stuff like the GTO, the Firebird, the Bonneville, the Starfire, uh, like cars from Oldsmobile and Pontiac and dead brands that people remember well from their prime, not what, you know, the Firebird became, not what the Bonneville became, but what the Bonneville was in like 1957 with fuel injection and mm -hmm. glamorous convertibles, the GTO for the first half decade of its existence. I don't necessarily think all of these things come back through GMC. Maybe they decide that if you do a GTO, it can be like a Chevy GTO and you know, <laughs> some aging boomers might revolt against this, but they're, they're kind of not the market anymore. A guy in his fifties might think that's cool. And that's sort of the problem with resurrections. You you need to have enough interest to to make it desirable because for the new customer that doesn't remember that, it means absolutely nothing and the product is going to be far more important. I think we've seen that time after time with with 
resurrections or retro themed vehicles that that failed to to really grab the attention of new shoppers. I think that's part of why Beetle came and faded because Beetle grabbed all of the old people that had Beetles back in the 50s and 60s and thought their Beetles were great. And then they bought one and they went, oh, yeah, I have another Beetle. That was so fantastic. Okay, get me back to my Lexus. Um, And if you don't have a new shopper that's somehow going to be interested in it, it's never going to pick up after that initial shot of of nostalgia has has been satisfied. I think that's where... Oddly enough, Chrysler, or I should say Stellantis now, has done a good job with the Dodge products. They definitely play hard on the nostalgia, but then they market heavily towards younger people that are simply looking for insane levels of power in a cheap car that's going to be easy to replace, uh, easy to insure, relatively speaking, easy to repair, and, and has an aftermarket behind it. The success of Challenger and Charger is exactly that weird combination of of nostalgic, get-off-my-lawn old dudes that want that car, and strangely young buyers that are saying, I don't care what it's called or what an old one was called or what the old one looked like. I just want one of these things because it's absolutely fun, and I can get 700 horsepower, 500 horsepower, or if I can't afford that, I can approach greatness with a V8 engine and 360 horsepower for the price of a Camry. Um, The demographic of Dodge is not bad as far as age goes. And that's one of the things that surprised me when I dug deeper into this is that the average age buyer of a Charger and Challenger is way younger than you might think. It's definitely younger than Camaro, uh, Charger, or sorry, yeah, Charger, because that's the sedan one. It's going to go back to a coupe. That's bizarre. But currently the sedan one, way younger than any other full-size sedan buyer in America. Also generally younger than like Camry and Accord buyers. You know what's interesting to me? There's been a generational shift for those vehicles because there is no question that back in 2008 when that first Challenger hit the market with the 6.1 Hemi, the mandatory automatic transmission, like it was built and tailored and advertised and priced as something for like a nostalgic baby boomer. Mm -hmm. And that was the original customer. That was the original buyer of that vehicle. Yep. And over time, given its extraordinary longevity, that platform has become the kind of thing you now see in YouTube videos of intersection takeovers in L.A. And it's not 75-year-old boomers driving those. It's a glamorous, like, outlaw-type ride for a young guy who's either, like, an outlaw or an outlaw wannabe. Like, you see muscle cars in the Fast and the Furious movies Mm -hmm. now, whereas when that series first came out in 2000. One, it was all about import tuners. It was yes. a completely different time and culture. Now but they're I, just full of V8s and Mopars. And this is where I wonder if Dodge can take this and run with it because it's this this tuner community that helps make it the younger person's dream car. When I was in high school, it was all about Honda Civic SIs and and things along those lines. Um, mainly Hondas, actually, to be perfectly honest. Honda does all Civic SIs. Um, they were the thing. Then there was the then there was the entry level Lexus, the Supras from the time, etc. When Lexus created the first uh, their first small car, rear wheel drive with the inline six, that was that was the hottest thing ever. Um, it was mind blowing. And now we see the same sort of thing from Mopar. And rather than the aftermarket leading it, we 
we see that Mopar themselves are really pushing hard on the tuner side, the factory accessories that won't violate your warranty. The upcoming Hornet, I think it's going to be an interesting test case because it's kind of, you know, it's kind of plain, it's kind of boring, it's kind of small, it's cheap. But Mopar is claiming that it's going to be track ready and you're going to have four corner Brembos from the factory and they're going to be additional factory accessories and option packs and boost packs and things like that that you can buy and add on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like if there is this interesting support from the manufacturer, is this going to encourage that tuner community to to welcome it in a way that they would not welcome, I don't know, uh, a Chevy Blazer? Yeah, I think so. I also think that realistically the companies that are doing business in the USA today have all the brands they need. Like, I don't think you need to resurrect Plymouth if you're mm-hmm. Stellantis to do say a Barracuda. I think you could do a Dodge yeah. Barracuda mm-hmm. and no one under 70 would complain. Exactly. I also think that realistically there are some companies that maybe could use a brand name, but don't have the history to match. Like Volkswagen coming out of nowhere with Scout trying to insert itself into the EV discussion. There's also a whole, you know, power play against their dealers and their distributors. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. But they're hitting reboot on their U.S. presence with yeah. a brand that I didn't even know they owned. So is there a possibility that some sort of venture capital in the future with a bunch of like ex-Tesla engineers might decide that the time is right for Packard to be reborn? I'm intrigued. I don't know if you need the Tesla engineers. I'm not sure that Tesla engineers are going to be helpful necessarily. Uh, You know, we have a lot of Tesla engineers at Lucid. We have them at Rivian. They're making inroads, but it's not like they're really pushing anything forward. They come across, honestly, as a little Tesla impersonate to be honest, rather than being novel and, and exciting. I think the weirdest resurrection that we've seen so far or creation, I guess, that we've seen so far that seems to be working is actually Polestar, I would argue. And if that's if that's Volkswagen's plan with Scout, then I'm on board. And if if Polestar hadn't turned out right, I think that 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 Scout would be doomed. But Volkswagen has a particular brand image around them, better or worse, right? Depending on what your impersonations are. But if you can create a separate brand, even if everybody knows it's still owned by you, you have this ability to create create value, create a brand recognition and brand perception around that that is separate. And as long as you don't screw it up, <clears throat> you know you can you can get that going. And in the minds of the customers that are not car people, that's the critical thing. You have a clean slate. And I think that's what we saw with Polestar. When Polestar came out, I was one of the people that said, this is just the dumbest thing I have ever heard. You know, why are we going to spend billions of dollars on a new brand, new factories, et cetera, when it's just an electric Volvo, spend the billion dollars making some electric Volvos and sell them. But it appears that there is room in the market for it. Polestar has been exceeding sales expectations worldwide. They're doing really well in China and Europe. Uh, I see them all over the place, strangely, in the Bay Area. So sales here are definitely very solid. And recently, I've been talking with a few people that bought a Polestar 2, and they say, oh, I never would have bought the Volvo. Why? What's what's wrong with the Volvo? And they just thought the brand was, was too old, too boring. It was too... Not that it was... This is an interesting construct, mind you. In their minds, they saw it as definitely appear 
to the Germans, which is something that Volvo has been striving for for decades, to be honest, because they haven't always had that that perception. But these customers that ended up buying something else, they definitely saw Volvo as a peer to Audi and BMW, maybe not Mercedes, but somewhere in that construct. But they saw all of those brands as being for old people. And they wanted the brand that wasn't for old people, which was Polestar. And I'm like, it's an electric Volvo. It's an XC40 that's been sat on. It shares parts. <laughs> it looks like a Volvo. It's the same thing. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you there. <laughs> and, I'm, and I even showed him, I'm like, it is literally the Volvo C40 concept with a Polestar logo. Like, here, look at the Polestar, look at the concept from Volvo. That's the Polestar. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, that is obviously what Volkswagen is hoping for with Scout, because whatever Volkswagen's image is, Volkswagen is like the guy who would buy a Subaru, but wants something even weirder. Like, <laughs> like I, I don't know how to describe other other than that, like the guy who sees himself as like a Subaru customer, but thinks a Subaru is too establishment. So he's going to go with the Volkswagen because he remembers the Farfignugan commercials from a million years ago. Yeah, um, I can see that. So Scout makes sense, especially since Scout, as far as I can see, is going to be an all SUV and pickup brand, which is a presence Volkswagen has never traditionally had in the U.S. They were late to the game with crossovers. They were late to the game with SUVs. The original Tiguan felt like a transplanted European product, which it was. Yep. That has not been their strength. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that some of the best things that Volkswagen has ever done have been simply transplanted European products. But at this point in time, that does not appear to be in vogue. No, the bringing <laughs> over a 1930s air-cooled rear-engined car and selling it for 20 years is no longer an option. Right. Here's a question. Stellantis. What is Stellantis's luxury brand? Is there room for an Imperial in there? Because I can see Ram being as the, yeah. the Ram is the Stellantis brand that can demand the highest retail price. And that is not a luxury car brand. I am intrigued because we do have Alpha and we have Maserati both in the US, yes. but they have particular baggage of their own. And I don't know if either one if I were running Stellantis, which I'm not, uh, you know, for various reasons, I'm sure. Neither am I. <laughs> I'm not French. Well. At the moment, I'm not French, so that would be required, I think. Um, if I were them, I would, I would probably kick Maserati to the curb and invest in some sort of North American luxury brand related to or product and platform sharing with Maserati. That would make sense, I think, in the U.S. because Maserati tends to be the higher level of performance for their European portfolio, the softer sprung, the more mature, the more grown up, the larger formatted vehicle. So uh, the Maserati Quattroporte was pretty large. Um, the Ghibli is pretty large, et cetera. And there's already some of this going on because the Ghibli and the 300 are very closely related. The Maserati Blavante, whatever that thing is, was an old Grand Cherokee, significantly restructured, but shared a lot with the Grand Cherokee. So there is precedent for this and there's room for it, I would think. It, Maserati just does not sell well enough, I would think, to make a go of North America. Now, they've promised every brand gets some absolutely bonkers amount of money and 10 years to prove themselves. These are deep pockets. You know, 
I don't know if our viewers realize how much money Stellantis has rolling around, but there has always been this perception that Chrysler is the canary in the coal mine and they're the weakling among the big three. Absolutely not true currently. Chrysler and the North American side of this whole conglomerate, they're the ones absolutely printing cash. So there is so much cash swimming around in this contraption because they've been able to sell chargers and challengers for decades without changing them and charging more and more every year. Uh, etc. So there's absolutely swimming in cash, and that is helping bankroll along with the success of the French divisions, the the transformation of all the global brands they claim. So we're definitely going to be seeing a lot more global integration of drivetrains and hybrid and powertrain components, things like that. Electric components also are likely going to be heavily shared between the French, the Italian, and North American components of Stellantis. But I I would argue there's still no room in this construct for Maserati. As much as I love, love Maseratis, I want to love them from afar. I think I want to love Maseratis when I'm in Europe. And then when I'm in North America, I want to love something else. And I think there's a, there's a solid case for that. And I think it's already happening. The MC20 mm -hmm. doesn't happen if Maserati is still a tenant brand of Ferrari. There was this push in the early 2000s and the late 90s to turn Maserati into BMW or Mercedes. Mm -hmm. That it was going to be a volume automaker, that it was going to compete in the B and the C and the D segments. And it was going to be something other than the more Gran Turismo oriented Ferrari pure that it was in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. Now it seems they understand that Maserati is basically supercars and super sedans, and that's been its traditional position in the market. And without yeah. Ferrari overseeing Maserati as a junior brand within Ferrari, you don't have those constraints. So Maserati goes for margin, low volume, and image, and I'm here for it. Uh, in terms of volume, who knows? Maybe given 10 years and a limitless budget and an EV reboot, Chrysler can make a comeback. But I, I do think that at this point, the only way you're selling a hundred thousand yeah. dollar Stellantis product in the United States is some sort of bonkers Hellcat derivative. It's a Ram, or it's a Jeep Wagoneer. Like that's the only yeah. way. You don't have a car or even a crossover that's not one of those that you can sell for a hundred grand as Stellantis. I think, I think that Chrysler has a better chance of becoming a higher volume luxury EV brand in North America than Maserati does, or yeah. honestly, Alfa Romeo, because that was always the problem with Maserati was, okay, they wanted it to be this high volume European brand. And then they were like, oh, but then there's Alfa. Let's make it also a high volume European brand. And uh, that Maserati thing, maybe we'll make them like a, like Mercedes only Italian. And then we'll call Alfa like the BMW. That's it. And it, that would, that plan was weird. Yeah, it caused a lot of there was there's almost no product overlap. Have you noticed between those two brands? And I can't help but think that's almost intentional. But then there's no cost savings in this because they don't share dealers. You don't go to a Maserati Alpha dealer. Yeah. No, and that's the benefit, I would say, for Chrysler is they've already got a thousand dealers in the U.S. And the best case scenario with Chrysler is that the next generation of your generation, you know, your generation Z's, your older millennials, uh, they're people who are going to have real car money and no memory of Lee Iacocca as anything other than a character in Ford versus Ferrari. And maybe they just get a clean slate with a new marketplace and a buyer with no, yeah. no memory of the brand. I think Lee Iacocca got a bad rap, to be honest, um, because he was what saved it. You know, make fun of the K-car all you like. K-car is what saved Chrysler. 
And no, I'm not going to make yeah. fun of it. I mean, I, I've got respect for the hardware that got the job done. Hey, there were the yeah. GLHs. There were the Chevy mm-hmm. GLHSs. There were yeah. some cool things in there. But I, I just think that three bailouts in the space of like one quarter century is more than most people with memory of those events can stomach. Um, so, okay. <laughs> We'll see. Maybe Chrysler gets a clean slate in the EV yeah, world yeah, yeah. tomorrow. I think the Italian brands have more problems. Chrysler's rebuilding from nothing. The Italian brands already have a lot of products that need to be kind of like shuffled off the market and made to make sense in the Stellantis structure. So what do they look like in a world where California is going all EV by 2035? I am intrigued. Uh, we won't know because EV sales are so low at the moment. Um, we should also preface the California conversation importantly in that actual rulemaking has yet to be done. So we have a pledge, we have a target. So far, the documents that have come out of the California Air Resources Board yesterday on the 25th of August include no actual talk about how this will work. So important things to remember here, no actual penalties for not meeting 100% compliance. Plug-in hybrids are allowed. Uh, There is some talk about a potential requirement that they have a specific mileage rating on electricity, not included yet because we don't know anything. Um, And it does not appear to include medium duty or heavy duty vehicles as defined by uh, the rulemaking bodies for for North for NHTSA. So, you know, uh, box trucks, buses, semis, those are seemingly not going to be required. Um, There is a definite strong preference in the legislation for battery electrics and hydrogen vehicles, though. Now, it's important to remember that this is going to be the end of standalone tailpipe gas-powered cars in California by 2035. Right now, I believe in the market, about 16% of the vehicles are either BEV, hydrogen, or plug-in hybrid. So they're farther along by quite a margin than the rest of the country. There are states that follow their uh, carb set emission standards, but that is not the same thing as having a internal combustion phase out like California right. does. It is expected that the current ZEV state requirement uh, group, which I think is about eight of the CARB states, eight of the 14, there is some expectations that they will probably adopt legislation similar to this. But to back everybody off the cliff again, so this is a goal really more than it is a requirement because there is no enforcement mechanism in what has been released so far. No fines, no limitations, etc. This is the goal s- structure here for pushing forward. And that seems to be why most manufacturers have been on board so far, as far as we have been able to determine. So General Motors has said this broadly aligns with their electrification strategy, et cetera. Um, And I think it will be doable for luxury brands because obviously Tesla is one of the biggest selling luxury brands in California. They're all electric already. Cadillac says they're going all electric. So do basically all the European brands, to be honest. They have some some form or another of, of all electrification plan by then. So if you're a luxury car buyer in California, absolutely not a problem. If you're a buyer of an inexpensive basic economy vehicle, there's probably a problem. And if you're a truck shopper, I would say there's definitely some room for concern, except that the plug-in hybrid thing is going to 
be allowed. And I really want to plug in truck. And we'll talk more on that can, later. <laughs> you can register a gasoline powered car bought out of state. So you can Correct. go to an adjacent state, buy a gasoline powered truck, if that's what you want, and drive it into California and legally register it under this plan as we know it today. As we know it today, yes, you'd be able to buy a new vehicle outside of state. You could probably have it delivered to your home. Probably don't even need to go out of state. Um, and you would be able to keep all of your old whatever vehicle you had. You could also buy used vehicles and bring them into the state or just dealers can truck them in from auctions and sell them on lots here. So there's no restriction on any of those sorts of things. And then again, there's the whole goal part. And California's had zero emissions goals in the past that were structured very similar to this. They've had a number of them actually. And those dates have come and gone and nothing happened. happened. The sky did not fall. Uh, nobody got fined, etc. Fines with CARB really only seem to happen when there is a actual solid concrete goal that is realistic, defined, and then not achieved. So the, for instance, the credit trading schemes that they've had for certain zero emission sales, that is a thing. And so far, not a problem because they trade credits around. And then we've seen emissions compliance actually stop sales of certain cars in California, but not in other states. That's been quite some time, though. Now, it's important to remember that California had its first ZEV mandate in 1990. That's when this whole mm -hmm. system started. And there was nothing resembling a reliable and practical and affordable zero emission vehicle back then. It has been pushed back many times. Mm -hmm. They have bent to reality. It's not like it's a bunch of starry eyed idealists who magically think that circa 1997, we're all going to be driving in 300 mile high speed charging Teslas. They kept pushing that back and back and back. And for the most part, they worked with the automakers to you know, find a way to rewrite the legislation in a way that was friendly and workable. And I think that enough of this is going to take care of itself that mm -hmm. it's not going to matter. Because in the U.S., the annual used car market is about 40 million cars a year. And the best auto market we've ever seen on the new car side it was about 17 million, a little mm -hmm. over 17 million. So most people now and in 2035 are going to be buying used cars and if you want to use gas powered car, you're going to be able to buy it in California. If you want to use electric car, it's going to be easier than ever after basically two decades of electric car production to find something that will meet your needs. So given how much is going yeah. to be available used at that point uh, and the fact that all existing gas powered cars are grandfathered in, I don't see this as being terribly traumatic. If the rule were every car on the road has to be electric, it would be a disaster. But I don't think we're looking yeah. at anything resembling that. And there is a difference currently between the the quote unquote mandates that we hear talked about and actual legal requirements, which yeah. this is not yet. So the time to worry would be if there was a legal requirement actually put in. Uh, and I admittedly, that is a time for people that live in apartments or co-living situations or lots of other situations to really be concerned because at this point in time, uh, admittedly, you know, 20 years uh, out from the realistic, I would say, end date of this it is 2035, but I expect it's going to get pushed out there. So maybe by 2040, we'll see something more along these lines. But uh, these communal living situations, uh, places where you rent, any any kind of rental situation, that's going to be tricky. And there's just no way, no two ways about it. Yeah. And I think a lot of this is going to be dependent on charging infrastructure, because the better the infrastructure gets, the less battery you have to put into the car. We would all probably be fine with a 45, 50 kilowatt hour battery if we thought we could replace it. 
or recharge it in five minutes at a charger mm-hmm. that's easy to find, always operational, and not queued up by yep. other cars. Um, and I'll say this, uh, look, we're already on the way to the electric future when it comes to trucks, because you recently staged a range test between the F-150 Lightning and the Rivian R1T, and you have some interesting conclusions to draw. Yeah, the, the Rivian is far more efficient than I had given it credit for at the beginning, to be honest. Uh, I've said this before, but when I drove the Lightning at its launch event, uh, 320 miles of range is what they advertised on the big battery. And I said, wow, this really appears to be game over for the Rivian. My Rivian's 314 miles of EPA range, theoretically. So, wow, you know, what are what's going on here? And the what's going on appears to be that Rivian probably elected a voluntary reduction and Rivian also tends to skew more efficient in their efficiency drive modes than we see in the Lightning. Uh, The Lightning really just has sport normal and normal doesn't disable an electric motor. It's still dual motor all the way. But Rivian offers a feature where you can disable the rear motors and have a front wheel drive bonkers crazy 400 horsepower pickup truck, which is absolutely insane in its own right. Uh, but that does save on if, on uh, economy. And uh, it also has the ability to lower the suspension for an aerodynamic ride height, which is probably a more significant factor out on the open highway. Uh, it's amazing, actually, that just lowering a vehicle one inch or so can have such a substantial impact on efficiency. Um, but the higher the speeds, the more efficient the Rivian is compared to the Lightning. That delta just starts to grow and grow and grow. A few reasons additional to that are apparently the Rivian has a nearly flat underbody and the Lightning is basically a regular body on frame truck with modules under there. So the under tray is is very inefficient as far as aerodynamics go in the Lightning. I'm surprised that Ford didn't change that. Um, basically, a, a plastic underbody panel that spanned the entire Lightning would probably have a significant Im- impact on range. And in a, a normal gasoline vehicle, you couldn't do that because of the cooling requirements. But in the Lightning, it really wouldn't matter. Now, it is important to note that the Lightning, I believe, is the slightly lighter vehicle in terms of yes. actual mass. Mm-hmm. So because this was a highway test, aerodynamic drag, which increases with the square of velocity, was the single biggest factor. And it might be that the Lightning in day-to-day commuting use around town below highway speeds with more regeneration brought into the frame, it might actually close the gap a little. But let's talk about the numbers. You were able to get a real-world consumption rate that allowed you to conclude the Rivian would be a 310 to 320 mile truck mm-hmm. on the highway with climate control at the yep. low setting. The Ford was about 250 to 255. Yeah. And the difference between them in terms of efficiency, kilowatt hours per mile was about 25%. Now, I think yep. the Ford would close the gap in urban driving. I also think that uh, one of the lighter models, there are other models. There's the you know, there's the XLT, for example. Um, I believe you had a Platinum, which is the heaviest one available. So mm-hmm. there might have been a little less of a difference with a different trim and different driving conditions. But if you want a road trip, it looks like the Rivian is the option. Yeah, I was I was, uh, I was, was intrigued because at the launch event where I was able to do some minor testing, there wasn't an enormous economy difference in the Lightning between the small and big battery packs. Um, 
And we have the Lariat, and that range test was in the Platinum. But in a subsequent range test on the Lariat, we got very similar economy numbers, even though that's theoretically rated for about 20 miles further. So I don't think that the trim variations impact economy as much as they might in a lab, uh, depending on the situation. Weight also is a tricky one <clears throat> because obviously it's going to increase your consumption going uphill because you have to lug more weight around. And our road trip range test route does go uh, over about 1,800 feet in elevation change with a lot of uh, country highway driving with a lot of undulations in it. So in, in those areas, sometimes heavier vehicles have a problem. But it wasn't as big of an issue as I thought in, in the Rivian, which was surprising. We also see a similar delta in efficiency when towing the same sort of trailers in the Rivian, which I was also uh, interested in because if it's a large trailer, the biggest sectional profile for aerodynamics is going to be the box trailer, for instance, not the tow vehicle. I had expected that gap to close considerably with something like that on the back of the trucks, and it only closed a small amount. So the, the difference there in efficiency was still right around 15 to 20%. It wasn't quite 25, but it was still significant. So now I think this is going to be a major factor that people are going to have to take into account because the difference you found was fairly huge. And I think initially we all thought what you basically concluded, that if the Ford was as economical as we thought it would be mm -hmm. right out of the gate, being a full-size truck rather than a mid-size, a body on frame rather than a unibody, and relatively older technology, um, there would be no place left for the Rivian to hide. So I'm actually kind of mm -hmm. happy to see that Rivian still maintains an edge and that a dedicated EV platform still does pay some sort of fruit to the to the client who buys the vehicle. Yeah, and we should say that the, the Rivian is body on frame. So just well, one, yes. one point of it's, clarification it's, it's there. So it's still still a body on frame truck uh, with a tiny bit of a tweak, but unimportant for this. Um, I would say the big the big difference is just that the Rivian is more of a lifestyle outdoorsy thing. The F-150, yeah, you can take it off road. We, we did a little bit of off roading at the launch event. It's big. It is hard to get around trails. Um, the ground clearance at all times is going to be lower than the Rivian, even in the Rivian's most economical highway focused, really low to the ground drive mode, it still has more ground clearance than the F-150 and it goes all the way up to 15 inches. So if you've ever wanted a, uh, Grand Cherokee Trailhawk with a bed that ran on electricity, this is your truck, um, for glamping. Yeah, I mean, you could go, you could do, you know, your geocaching, you could do the national park thing. If you're a rock climber or a kayaker or a boater, things like that, uh, this is a great option. You can, you know, go a little bit further off the beaten path without worrying too much about it. You can clamber up that little trail on the BLM property. Don't stay too far from the plug, obviously, yes. but its range is further than the Lightning as well. So it does give you that option to, you know, say charge up. If you're going up to the Sierra Nevada, you could uh, you could stop at the last charging station somewhere there, maybe in Tahoe or something like that, and you'd be able to go a hundred miles out and still have plenty of electricity to get back to that charging station before you went on. That sort of of mission strikes me similar to the Subaru Solterra, oddly enough, but the Solterra has 100 miles less range, so it's a lot less likely to survive that kind of outdoorsy, campy mission uh, because you just won't be able to get there from here.
And then the final topic, also in an EV vein, but very silly, is this whole notion of synthesized sound. The first time <laughs> I remembered seeing anything like this was when the Jaguar I-Pace was in development and they said, well, we've got, we've got a sound that's based on the whir of the helical cut gears of the transmission and it's magnified. I'm like, was it going to sound like a TIE fighter? And it kind of did. Now mm -hmm. the sound has moved from the inside of the car to fool the driver. It's moved outside of the car with this new SRT concept. And it's as loud as a Hellcat. Do we like this or not? I blame BMW because okay. if you recall, the BMW i8 had a speaker on the outside with an exhaust tip. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do remember so, that. <laughs> so I blame BMW. <laughs> um, I, it was a mini engine. It was a mini engine. Yes. It had two exhaust pipes, and one of them was real, and one of them was a speaker. And that second exhaust pipe made it sound almost like, I don't know, like a Ford Cosworth RS200. Yeah, it tried to add three extra cylinders and some extra rumble. Um, the, the, the Dodge thing, I'm, I'm curious to, as to what it sounds like. I can see this being incredibly popular and also very disturbing. Um, if you are in the market for a modified exhaust, clearly you want everybody to hear your thing driving down the road. This is for you. This is your thing. Whether the rest of us want to hear you going down the road, that is an entirely different construct. You know, I've heard it. I've heard it and it's profoundly weird. It's as loud as they say it is. <laughs> But imagine someone with like a DeWalt power drill mm -hmm. and magnifying this thing through like Jimmy Page's Marshall stack amplifier. That is exactly yep. what it sounds like. It's a drill with like a Marshall stack at 50,000 watts, you know, playing Shea Stadium back like at the peak of Guns N' Roses popularity in the early 90s. It's a very strange thing. And I, I absolutely think it's going to be the ultimate antisocial accessory. Like people are going to get so angry about this. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's less understandable for the general public in a way because there is this understanding that cars make sounds when they go vroom. And that if you have a big, powerful one, it's exhaust sort of has to make more noise if you want it to be more free-flowing and get better performance. There's a general concept that this is how it applies to gasoline vehicles, that that sure, you could make a Corvette quieter, but it would give up some kind of performance envelope for this. But the moment they don't need to be loud to be performing, then it's definitely a, I have made a choice to annoy. It's interesting because I remember when municipalities started creating these decibel level fines and they were all you know, de determined mm -hmm. by noise created by modified exhaust. I went and looked in the common threads below these these articles on Autoblog and like The Drive and Jalopnik. And I expected it to be like old guys like get off my lawn. How dare you? They loved it because I think they had in their mind a picture of a punk kid being the one who trips this system. Mm -hmm. And I think going forward, it's not going to be the muscle car diehard guy who wants these weird synthesized like electric car noises. It's going to be the guy who is now, I don't know, like 30 to 40 years old buying a Hellcat and, you know, basically just smoking them until they pop. Like that's going to be the guy who wants this. It's not <laughs> going to be the muscle car like old schooler. I don't know what yeah. to say. <laughs> I uh, I wonder if it's going to take off. Uh, 
I mean, we'll see who selects the option box and who unplugs it and who decides to modify it to make it even louder. <laughs> I guarantee you this will be a generational thing. The state of Florida will ban this. Like for all of its libertarian, like right-leaning political preferences, the second one person with one of these fratsonic chambered exhaust chargers wakes up 1,000 people in Sun City, uh, Sun City is going to go out and they're going to ban this thing because old people vote. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like uh, if your car comes with one and this is a simple electrical connection, why not have two or three or four? Yeah, well, exactly. You could, just line, you could line them up on the trunk. Uh, that's the only thing missing from the Hummer EV, and our episode comes full circle. <laughs> I am surprised. The only thing I would say that the Hummer EV is lacking is not one of those. It's lacking some sort of digitized truck nuts, something very angular and very uh, very new. There we go. That's you have to leave some room for the aftermarket, Alex. That's true. It's true. Should okay. be should be uh, should be like a nineteen nineteen nineties art installation with all the angular panels and yeah. Yeah. So if you want truck nuts on your EV Hummer, let us know in the comments below. Alex, where can they find us? They can find us on Facebook as Alex and Autos. They can find us on Twitter, Instagram. They can find us on the regular Alex on Autos YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Alex and Autos. And of course, the EV Buyer's Guide channel as well for all of your EV needs, including a detailed explanation of the uh, income tax credit that is changed and is changing still. That's where we're going to be posting all of the latest updates. And we've reached the checkered flag. See you later.